Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to be with us for this episode. My guest is Jonathan Charks of Real GM and many other outlets. He is one of my absolute favorite writers. He's been a guest on the show numerous times before, and we started out talking about the Sixers. He wrote an interesting piece about Julia Logafor and Nerlens Noel, talked about where the league is going, and connected that with various players, including Carl Anthony Towns and Chris Porzingis. Also talk about college. He's been very into that this year and the players who he thinks are going to translate and things like that. And the conversation runs about 50 minutes. I really enjoyed it, and I hope you will too. Thanks so much for coming on. Hey, man. How you doing? Doing well. I, I figure the best place to start, of course, we'll probably cover a lot of ground, is you wrote a, a really interesting piece, actually kind of a couple of them, about how you see the Sixers and Jaleel Okafor. I, I guess I'll give you the first word on it. Just You want to summarize what you your kind of feelings on Okafor and his fit with the Sixers? I guess my basic thing with him is I look at Okafor, I see a super advanced offensive prospect with huge holes on defense. And that wouldn't most fairly be a big issue, except he's a center. And if you look around the league, most teams with bad defensive centers are bad teams. Like generally, that's a defensive position. And if you're playing a guy who does not protect the rim, does not move his feet, does not know how to call it coverages, and cannot be the quarterback of your defense, you're going to be a bad team. And the reason most teams have centers is because they want to play good defense. Otherwise, they play five small guys and score a lot of points. Somebody with Jaleel is like, as good as he is on offense, I'm telling you he's good at defense, it's going to put a pretty low ceiling on his team. And my concern with him is that it's going to take him realistically an awfully long time to get good at defense. Like, I look at big men with his kind of skill set and their athletic ability. They have to really think the game at a high level. They have to know the game really well, no personnel. You're looking three, five years at the earliest, I think, before you can become even an average defender. And that's just, that's tough. What makes it even worse is the team around him is so young, they can't really keep them in front of him to begin with. So they have to have a guy who protects the rim instead of makes it even worse. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of that. I think that it is challenging but not impossible to build a defense without having a center. However, what it requires from everybody else is both from a coaching standpoint and from a personnel standpoint, incredibly hard to do. Boston, I think, has done a pretty good job, and Charlotte, of course, with Clifford has done it. But again, it's it's a massive undertaking, and as is true with any NBA player with a flaw, you have to decide whether the positives they bring are worth that. And as you said, the calculus for him at center is completely different than anywhere else. The closest parallel I can draw is a point guard who's really gifted defensively that can't run an offense. Yeah, or can't shoot. Same kind of basic idea. Yeah, same basic idea. And something you talked about in in one of the pieces, I believe it was for, for your site, was about how Okafor is, I would say, is negatively impacting what we're seeing from Nerlens Noel because the two of them together, we don't get to see Noel really reach towards the maximum of his potential. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the main thing is with centers, you got to pick one or the other and build around them. But playing with two centers in the modern NBA is almost impossible, unless one of them is like Carl Towns. And you have Towns and Gorgie Jang. But realistically, the things Nerlens does requires being at the front of the rim. And so do the things that Jaleel does well. And so you're going to have to pick one or the other. And that's before we get into Joel Embiid, which is a whole different can of worms, obviously. And with Noel, I think some people kind of can confuse a couple of different aspects. And one is that 
because he is physically capable of, I would say, of defending fours, that doesn't mean that he should do it. You know, his best position is the five either way. Yeah, for sure. Like, the strength of his game is protecting the rim. So because he can do something else, but it takes the strength of his game, then what's the point of even having him out there? Like, you're not maximizing his ability at all. And offensively, I think that he derives almost all of his value from playing the five because he doesn't really stretch the floor and because his quickness advantage on fives, and we're seeing this around the league a little bit now, and you wrote an interesting piece we'll get into a little bit later about with the idea of Henry Ellenson and guys like that, is that there are certain competitive advantages that those kind of tweener guys only really get one direction that they don't get the other way. Yeah, to me it seems like the way the league is going is like, if you have the speed advantage, you have the advantage. So you want to play guys out as much as possible. And so with Noel, he's playing the four, he's playing small, fast guys, and he has to post them up. And I don't think I'm breaking any news here when I'm saying, if you're posting them Nerlens Noel 15 times a game, it's not necessarily a way to succeed in the modern NBA. And I think that's true more broadly as well, that, you know, the advantages or disadvantages that you get. I, I was struck last night, I was watching the Warriors in the, the Heat play, and the Warriors pretty much, other than a little bit towards the very end, refused to slide down against Hassan Whiteside. And Nate, Duncan, and I talked about it last night, but Hassan Whiteside is not particularly well suited to taking advantage of that kind of physical advantage on somebody else he, he can do other things but he's not a post-up guy he can't pass and so th- when you don't have to make that choice then you try then that's when you try to go small yeah i haven't watched the heat since Bosch has been injured so this is purely me speculating but i've been super curious to see if you move gang to the four and you play really fast around the five whether that will actually make them a more interesting team and i think all around the league you're seeing that with poor with, with mo harthless going from the three to the four I think that makes them a much more interesting team. It's all about getting speed all over every position on the floor you can. And what I've been thinking about, and I, I've been, I haven't written it yet, but I've been trying to put it together, is that the more prevalent that is, then the more acceptable it is everywhere else, because then you start making the choice. Basically, my, my theory on that with the three spot and the four is that I think eventually we're just going to see a lot more straight small forwards play the power forward position, because power forwards, generally speaking, don't have the game to exploit that size mismatch. Yeah, and if they did, then we'll throw my five on you, if, if, if it comes to worst-case scenario. So it's really hard to do it. I, re- I remember reading it. What really crystallized things for me was, one, watching that Gri- Grizzlies-Warriors series last year when Harry Barnes really shut down. I, I wouldn't say shut down, but he guarded Zebo well enough. And I was reading a profile, and then your boy Ron Adams, he says, I see the league being where well, there's a lot of Harrison Barnes out there. And I was like, that's exactly right. Three's playing fours. That's the way the league is going. I agree, and that ties into a guy that that you've talked about recently, which is Jalen Brown. And I've seen he's one of the few guys in college that I've actually seen in person because I live nearby. And I think that he's kind of towing a couple lines. I think in in the olden days, you know, like in the '80s or whatever, he would have been a straight three, been a straight small forward. And now he can be a four. He doesn't really have the offensive game for it. But I think defensively, there's a place for him in the league. Oh, yeah. If he's playing the four, then you boom, switch, pick, and roll like that. And I think you're seeing with the Warriors, I think I think the league is realizing now that going big and going big is not going to work. That was the story of last year's playoffs. Well, let's pound Draymond inside. Let's be bigger, slow tempo. That's just not going to work. you got to put a wig on Draymond, you switch, pick, and rolls, and you run it from there. Because otherwise, anything else, you can't pick and roll at all, I don't think. You can't trap Steph, you can't get Wonder. It's got to switch it. A really fast player at the four can do that. And I think that's really where Jalen has value. 
he's playing in a three of these he's been saying. Like, he can't shoot that well. He's not a great ball handler, passer, and a great scorer. You really have value at the next level. I think he has to be a four. When fours are banging less, when they're playing less back to the basket, and also tactically, I think, and this, I, I feel, is one of the bigger long-term legacies of the Warriors, is that you can, if, if that's what the, if that's what you're conceding, you can mitigate that, I think, a lot better than you used to be able to with, with trapping, with switching, with movement, and things like that. So if that if you if that's the worst case scenario, it's not that bad. Yeah, yeah. So one of the I, I've also been thinking about with Draymond is that well, of course, the general concepts that we've been talking about are I, I think are valid and are, will eventually become a lot more prevalent than they are now. It does require special personnel, and there aren't many people who can do what Draymond does either offensively or defensively. And what I'm wondering about is how awkward that evolution is going to be with the people who aren't so good like Towns and maybe Porzingis and Miles Turner who to make that transition you know when people try to do it with some other six foot eight guys that might not make it work we might see some really bad outcomes but I feel like even then that's kind of worth it for where this is going I mean I think it's like you know you use the old metaphor just the evolution of the game in real time you'll just see what the NBA wants they'll start selecting for players and that will trickle down to AAU level. Like, I'm working on a thing right now with Draymond. Because I feel like 10 years ago, you look at Draymond and say, well, he's not big enough to be a four, done a three. He's one of those combo forwards. He's Antonio Gates. He's Tony Gonzalez. He's Jimmy Graham. Like, let him be an NFL tight end. Now, all those kind of players, they got to place the NBA again. Like, you're 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, 240 pounds, really skilled guy, not necessarily a great shot blocker, necessarily a great shooter. And that makes sense for him now. And the league starts going, hey, don't go to play NFL. You can play in the NBA. We're looking for guys like this. And that just trickles down from there. Like the Julius Peppers of the world. Another exactly, guy. Exactly, yeah. Going to take a quick break so I can tell you about the inaugural sponsor of Real Jam Radio Podcast. And I'm thrilled that it is SeatGeek. As some of you know, but most of you don't, I was actually a ticket broker buying and selling tickets and, of course, going to a lot of events all around North America earlier in this decade. And so I've been around the business a lot, and I'm thrilled to have SeatGeek as sponsor because it is my go-to for buying and selling tickets. There are a lot of reasons for it for me. One of them is aggregation, so you know that when you're buying a ticket that it combines all of the other sites that are out there, so you know that you have everything available. Also, since their prices are all in, you can compare apples to apples instead of being hit with fees after the fact, which can be pretty frustrating. And also, they have deal score, so you can tell whether the tickets that you're buying or the tickets that you're selling, you can see if it, if they think it's a good deal. And my personal instinct is that that will make for sellers to be a little bit more aggressive because if they see their stuff as a bad score, it's probably not going to sell. For Real GM Radio listeners, you can get a $20 rebate on your first SeatGeek purchase. What you have to do is you have to download the free SeatGeek app. It's a wonderful app. Then you go to the settings tab, and one of the things there is add a promo code. The promo code is REALGM, R-E-A-L-G-M, all capitals. You'll know it because it's the name of the podcast. And then when you make your first purchase, SeatGeek will send you $20. So not only do you get to experience a great product, you also get to get $20 off your first purchase. So I strongly encourage you to do that, and we'll get back to my conversation with Jonathan Charks. I also think, though, that one of the key attributes of those players is intelligence. And if that becomes something that is selected for at, at a higher level, I think that would be a great thing in a lot of different ways. If that if we're encouraging that in professionals, then, again, that's going to filter down to AAU, too. Yeah, exactly. Like, the game changes pretty fast, and kids pick up on it really quickly. They all want to be rich. They all want to make money. You know, same as anything else. 
I talked uh, probably a couple months ago with Adi Joseph, who's my editor at the Sporting News when he was on, on this podcast, about my idea that I think that we should, as a kind of as a country, I guess would be the right way to put it, we should focus more on developing guard skills in everybody, because it seems pretty apparent to me that at, at any really level, we're not particularly good at training big men for big men skills. And so, except for things like screening, which I think would be great if almost everybody could do. I think that if we can get people to a more comfortable base in terms of dribbling and passing, and I think there are more coaches in the youth levels that can teach that. I mean, that's, that's the story of the league for the last 15 or so years. Just the big man. I don't, I'm from Dallas. When I was going to play basketball, all the big men wanted to shoot jumpers like dirt. And that takes you to Marcus, Chris Bosch, all these kind of guys. And so that's been going on for a while now. The bigs want to play like guards. In the AU game, you're not going to see much post-up play to begin with. Which kind of, going back to Jaleel, I think is one of the low-key problems in Philly. As I was watching at the Mavs, Jaleel's posting up. The other four guys don't have a clue what to do. They don't know about cutting off the ball. They don't know about reposting. They don't know any of that. It's just, it's just, they don't, it's just running around with crazy people. They don't know what, what to do. They don't know to use a boat thing there at all. And that's a really good point because I, th- I think we sometimes lose sight of how involved the other four guys have to be on a post-up because we don't see that as much anymore as we should. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it's a very complicated system of events that has to go down. Like, I think people think post-up, oh, we'll just throw the goal, goal inside, we'll stand on the perimeter, but no. you got to get movement first. You gotta repost them. Gotta get them to seal. Gotta get a post entry pass. My goodness, how many guys still post entry pass these days? Probably half a dozen. Yeah, Ron. That's one of Rondo's huge benefits is that he's one of the few guys that can do a lot of those passes, and so Demarcus Cousins can get the ball in better spots. Well, you know, as a Dallas guy, I won't talk about Rondo too much. He had quite a run here. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, he has certain merits, and I think that Sacramento is a better place for those than Dallas, considering. DeMarcus Cousins, you know, he's more valuable for that than he was playing with Dirk or any of the other bigs that Dallas has. Well, I think with him, it was just him and Monte. That was like oil and water, those two guys playing together. That was just walking into it. That was just a suicide mission to jump. We talked about the idea, I think both of us are less enamored with the idea of a post-up true center, but I still see a value in posting up. I just think it should come from the smaller positions. You can think about somebody like Sean Livingston, who I think is really good at it. Shabazz Muhammad does a pretty good job. Wiggins at moments does it. And so the idea that I've, that I've been running around is the idea of going four out, but having the, the guy that's in being somebody who is not the center. Yeah, basically inverting your offense. Yeah, I mean, that's like, I think that goes back to your saying of versatility. And the way, the way players have to be taught now is you've got to do everything. The game is going for complete basketball players. You have a hole in your game that's going to be exposed. You want to be the best you can be, be good at everything. Learn how to dribble, learn how to pass, learn how to shoot, learn how to post up. And that's all going to matter. Like, that's why I really like, I like Carl Towns so much, because he can do everything really well, and that's really the way the, the game is going right now. And as we talk about the idea of where the game is going and you know these different things, it is incredibly important to note that any sort of arc or development or thing like that can be changed or the rules don't apply to the truly special. You know, if you are if you can reach that level where you can get your shot, where you can be a rim protector, whatever it is that you do really well, if you can do that in spite of the movements that are going the other way, then you can still do that. And I think what is so impressive is that we have this group of at least three big men in this rookie class, and you could expand it if you really wanted to, where you don't have to make those sacrifices. So when we talk about the way the league is going, doesn't matter. It fits them already. I mean, the guy I really want to see more of is Jokic. 
I haven't watched him a ton. He's coming to Dallas on Friday. He's coming to Dallas tomorrow night, actually. Have you watched much of him? Like, I, he looks really good from the few times I've seen him play. Well, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what you think of him because he, offensively, he does a lot of what you want. He is a, a really good passer. I haven't watched, you know, a ton. I've really liked what I've seen, but I haven't seen a ton. But he doesn't do the same things in terms of the defensive value that we were, when we were talking about with Towns and ideally with Turner as well, where, you know, he can protect the rim. He can do all that stuff. I don't trust him on that yet. That isn't to say, you know, he's 21 years old. He can get there. He just isn't there yet. And, there aren't many 20, 21-year-olds who are there in the first place, so I'm not really sure we should put that. But when he's not, I, I, I don't think of him as the most athletic guy in the world. Those are the ones that I generally give the credence to. You know, like Tyson Chandler didn't come into the league as a great like great defender. He was more of a shot blocker than a defender, and he developed that. But it's a lot harder to get to that place. Like, I guess, Marcus Gasol did. It's harder to get there yeah, from where absolutely. he was, but it's still possible. And I think that's what people always say, like, You've got to wait a long time on big men. Because I've, I've always thought, like, playing interior defense is the hardest thing to learn in the NBA. Because it just takes it's such a mental – I mean, it's physical, obviously, too, but it's a mental challenge. When you're the quarterback of the defense. And a lot of it also comes from experience, that there are things that you just will never have seen before you play in an NBA game unless you're maybe at the highest levels of Europe. Yes, that – and it's just knowing personnel around the league. It's knowing, well, how this guy likes to drive the ball. What's possible this guy wants to go to and that just comes from repetition from playing them ten, twelve times over four, five years period of time. And that also might explain why you see this pattern of physically gifted big men hit their defensive prime a lot later. So a guy like Bogut, Bogut was a you know number one pick for a reason. It wasn't primarily because of his defense. He became a great defender kind of after his offensive game waned. Though of course he's a different guy for that because the reason his offensive game fell off is because of injury. Yeah, and I think as you were saying, Gasol is a perfect example. I remember when I first saw him, I was like, wow, this guy is not going to be a very good defensive player. He's so slow, but he just thought the game was big enough and he produced himself really well when defensive player did, which I would have never thought possible him And a lot of that is also communication. And communication takes time. It takes time to really know where to be and to do that. And also, I, I don't know this for sure, but it feels like having a good mentor and really getting in best practices for that kind of thing is, is good because you don't really get trained on that beforehand. And that's one of the benefits that I see of Carl Anthony Towns spending mm-hmm. at, at least the first year of his career, but probably the first two with Kevin Garnett. Yeah, I remember, I think Perkins always said that when he was still a pretty good player. He always credit Kevin Garnett for teaching him how to do be the quarterback of the defense. I wonder, I, I just don't know if, you need to have those players on roster to really be those mentors, or if you can just say like a, a Jason Collins or somebody like that, if you can have them on your coaching staff and they can do basically the same thing. I, I would assume that a lot of it, though, is seeing through watching, through watching them do it in person, execute it themselves. Because they can say do whatever, but it's watch it, execute it on the court. And in practice, too. Really helpful. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a good but point. I'm just speculating. I don't know. Yeah, I wonder, because otherwise you're just going to always have this really small group of teachers if they can't do it as coaching staff, because you have to still be at least a little bit relevant as a player to be on to be in that kind of a capacity. And, I mean, I think that's why you see so many big men hang around so long on back ends of rosters, precisely those kind of reasons. And that gets into something, I've talked about it before with the Sixers, that does bother me is that you can't necessarily see – all 15 of your roster spots, I also think they should expand that, but all 15 of your roster spots going to just kind of upside plays because part of what 
you need to do is skill development and having guys, not not only the whole veteran showing them the ropes in terms of being a pro and all that, I think that that is incredibly valuable, but also just the, the institutional knowledge that you get and that can resonate a lot better from an active player than anybody else. Yeah, and I think in general, too, like, we look at teams amassing draft picks. I do think there's a diminishing marginal return the more young guys you've got. Because, like, you see with Philly, like, we're talking about Okafor and Noel. To get the most out of their games, you've got to put six players around them. So if you have two or three guys whose games don't fit well together, they're never going to reach their ceiling as players with how you're developing them. So you have to commit to one or two, which is why... You can only have so many top five picks on your roster or top ten picks. I think you saw Orlando at the deadline with Tobias Harris. They, they liked him as a player, but they had Aaron Gordon behind him, so they had to make a decision, and he was gone to pretty much nothing. So, all said and done, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's only so much you can do with so many young players at any one time. Yeah, I, I think that's true to a point. Uh, obviously, I think if you can get the veteran, the veteran aspect, the ideal, and this doesn't happen as much now, and we'll see where it goes, is to have a veteran guy who can do that, let's say in their, maybe a little bit more in their early 30s as opposed to their mid-30s, who is still a functional player so that you're not, quote-unquote, sacrificing a roster spot. But you are right that you can reach this point of diminishing returns. I think Minnesota has been there at a couple different points. And also, with the way that rosters are limited and constructed now, you can look at a team like Boston, where they have a series of interesting, you know, kind of lottery tickets, if you will, with Rozier and RJ Hunter and James Young and Jordan Mickey, who I know you really like. And, you know, that they're probably going to add a couple more to that mix. Like, if you can't get much to consolidate them, then you're going to have to make some tough decisions. Yeah, I mean, I think of my man Bruno Caboclo in Toronto. I mean, how is he ever going to get any minutes there? It doesn't seem anyway. And the NBA, I, I personally feel they play too many games, and so that also means when you have an 82-game season and you have it under the calendar limits that we have, they don't get to practice as much as, as we... It's not as much that as I'd like, but just as much as would be necessary to really both integrate new players, like when a guy comes in at the deadline, it usually takes a while to figure them out, and just to develop those guys during the season itself. So it puts a lot of the onus on the players' off-season regimen in summer league. Oh, absolutely. I think you saw that with the Mavs when the Mavs played for Rondo. I remember being stunned. It's like, wow, they are never practicing. It was, they went like a month with like three practices at home. And it was like, well, how are they ever going to integrate this guy on their team? Never going to practice. And it's even more egregious after the All-Star break because they generally condense it a little bit more. You see more back-to-back. It's concerning because, yeah, you, you you don't have trouble with that. And I that to me, that really degrades getting a guy at the deadline, which isn't the worst thing in the world. I mean, that you don't have to prioritize that. But at the same point, I think it's also good from a rest perspective because also what you see, and part of the reason they have so few practices, is that the days they have off are often heavy travel days. Yeah. And I think that's the one word I have when people say, oh, young guy, go to the NBA, get paid to develop. And that's true, but as you were saying, it's you got to be so self-motivated because you're not practicing, you're not playing. It's very easy to fall into negative habits. If you're used to playing all the time, all of a sudden, you're a millionaire, you play once a month, and you have no one watching what you're doing, and you're a 19-year-old kid in a foreign city. Like I think for me, the guy I'm curious to watch is Noah Vonley, because I've been watching a lot of Indiana this year, and they are a really fun college team. And I'm watching them thinking, man, if Vonley was still in college, you'd be a junior. Surrounded by future NBA players, you'd probably be a first-team All-Big Ten guy, first-team All-American, realistically. I mean, that's pretty, I think, pretty plausible. You'd be considered top five, top ten pick. Is he really better off these last two years playing limited minutes on teams trying to win? I don't know. 
I'm something to watch that for sure. Yeah, it's hard to know offhand. I don't think college does a particularly good job developing guys either. I mean, you see a lot of guys. Actually, something that I think about is Festus Azili told me once that he picked up the game really late. I think he picked it up at it was 14 or 16. I can't remember offhand. But his his whole thing with that was that he was very pleased that it allowed him to not have developed any bad habits. And that's another, for me, another aspect towards teaching big men, you know, developing that stuff a little bit later is that if you kind of take that out of the young coach's hands, they hopefully you can kind of make it more of a, a blank slate when they get to a level, maybe when they're 16 or 17, where you could have something like a big man camp where they can really even run by the NBA, which is actually the way I would do it, and just oh, sure, do best sure. do best practices with those guys, give them, you know, because I think by 16, 17, you have a pretty good idea of who could be, you don't know for sure, but who could be a potential NBA big guy, and then you give them like two weeks two weeks every summer, and you say, here, talk to Shaq, talk to Lajuan, talk to all these guys, and... We'll, and the NBA will pay the money to make it so these guys are a little bit better prepared for where this is going. Well, I do think that those, some of those camps, I forget what it's called. I'm not sure if it's Team USA or like the NBA Players Association. They have like top 100 players. They come for a weekend and NBA players are there. That story reminded me a lot of Tim Duncan, obviously. Like Virgin Islands, he was a swimmer, the famous story about the hurricane. So I'll play basketball. I'm 16, I'll play basketball. He has no bad habits. And then you see from there, he's just the most fundamentally sound basketball player. One of the most ever we've ever seen. And that also might be true, I don't know it for sure, I'd love to ask him if I have the chance, of somebody like Anthony Davis who started as a guard. He probably didn't have many habits as a big man because he wasn't one. That's true, I don't talk about that, but that is true. That is very true. So one of the things that you focused on more this year than I have is the college game, and I try to keep Real GM Radio more focused on the NBA, but who has really stuck out to you on the college level, ideally those that you're thinking of as a pro? Well, I mean, I think you got to start, of course, with Simmons and Ingram. They're the two guys who really stood out this year. I think everyone kind of realizes this draft is not going to be 2015. It's one of the weaker drafts we've seen in a while. But those two guys have really kind of, really all see. I mean, Ingram started off slower. Simmons started off really strong. And we've seen kind of, they both had their games kind of picked apart in the last few weeks. And I, th- I still think those are, they're, they're clearly the two top American players in this year's draft. And I would say, like, I, I would think Ingram, I, I would think, would be one of the best. They'd both be top five-ish pick, I think, in most drafts. After that, though, there's definitely a pretty big drop-off. Do you feel like a lot of Simmons' value is going to be derived from the offense going through him? I mean, 100%, because he can't shoot, so he has to have the ball in his hands all the time. And that's the concern with Simmons. If you start like looking at well, who could be drafting that high, it's like, whoa, whoever drafts Simmons is going to have to make a lot of changes really fast to the roster. He's, like, he's not the same kind of player as Jaleel, but the same kind of thing that the holes he has in his game are going to require very specific players around him to maximize what he can do well. Whereas with Ingram, Ingram is just plug and play. I mean, he's much younger, he's much thinner, so he might not be as ready physically, but he's a great shooter, he's super long, can handle pass. He's a plug and play pretty much anywhere. Yeah, and there are very different values. I mean, somebody with Simmons' talent, you you can see the ceiling where, you know, if you can get uh, something I've always keyed on is that if you can get somebody who can run your offense from a position other than point guard, that is an incredible value. And especially for him, if he can defend fours, that it would be a huge benefit too because that's not a premium defensive position. So you and, and that way, if he can really do that, then more of the forward defenders that we see in the league are of the 3-4 variety. You can think about... 
Kawhi, Giannis, whoever. I mean, Giannis isn't even really at that level yet, but most of those guys are small forwards that can move up. So if that's what Simmons can do offensively, defensively, I think finding a complement at the three is a lot easier. Yeah, I mean, in terms of his defense, Simmons reminds me a lot of Blake Griffin in terms of, like, he is super athlete, very well built, but he's kind of got short arms, and he's so used to playing offense. He's not necessarily locked in all that often on defense. But when he wants to, he can play some great defense. The game I was back to with Simmons is he went up against Henry Allenson, uh, Marquette, earlier in the season, and that's the guy who's probably going to the lottery, top 10, top 5 pick. And they were going one-on-one for 40 minutes, and that was, that was really something to watch. And what happened was Simmons would press up an Allenson on the perimeter, he'd guard with the ball of his hands. Allenson would post him up and shoot on the top of him because Simmons kind of had a short little, arm, short little wingspan. And that's thing Simmons is, his arms are going to mean he cannot take plays off on defense, which he does all the time right now. Is that a concern for you, or do you think, ah, oh, it's, you know, it's a, a teenage kid, he, he'll figure it out? I think he, he should be able to, but you never know. That's something that probably comes down to interviews, knowing him as a person off on and off the court. He has the skills to be a good defender, but I don't think it'll come easy to him because of his length. Is there a, a team or a situation that stands out to you with Simmons that you think would be a positive of, oh, that, that makes a lot of sense, or is it just kind of situationally? I think I'm looking right now at like the kind of the top five-ish. I feel like the the cliche answer is Boston. They pretty much created the perfect supporting cast for somebody to walk in there. And he would he would look great in Boston with Amir Johnson, all those wings around him who can shoot and play defense. I think what I've worried about with Simmons a team like LA or Philly or Minnesota that has very little shooting. That I think would be a very, very big problem. I think Minnesota would be fun because you would have to think about it in a different way than they are right now, which is the idea that if Simmons was as good as we hope, that he and Towns are your core. And then you have to, the other guys, you either make them work or you don't. And I know a lot of Minnesota fans don't like thinking about Wiggins that way. And of course, the only reason that you would ever do that is by getting somebody as good as Ben Simmons. But I guess you could make the same argument that if they had the choice, then Ingram make, or Ingram is a better better aligned. But if you could theoretically, let's say, let's say Simmons and Towns, if you could have them at the four and the five, what you could do at the other three spots could just be revolutionary. I see that, but I, what I'm looking with them is imagine Ingram and Wiggins of three and the two. You got a seven, a six foot eleven guy and a six foot eight guy who are super athletes with super long arms. They could just terrorize teams on defense. And then Ingram is a perfect guy for them because he spreads the floor. Because I feel like the worry is if you have Simmons and Ruby out there, Towns becomes a spot up shooter, which is you know he can do it. But I want Carl Towns playing in the paint. I want Carl Towns attacking the basket. I want guys open the floor to Carl Towns. Like, Simmons' best skill is creating shots for somebody else. But Carl Towns does not need somebody creating shots for him, really. He can do it all by himself. So for me, I think Minnesota, I'll go Ingram for sure. And I'm just trying to imagine Ingram and Wiggins just absolutely just tear our teams on defense in the perimeter. Yeah, and you could, you could also you could bounce them at the 2 and 3. You could also do them at the 3 and 4, depending on the circumstance. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And yeah, and then you think about, so the two of them, I don't think necessarily Rubio is a mandatory part of their future if you get those two, but you could put as the third guy of that, you know, non-point guard, non-center rotation, as long as that guy can shoot, whatever his other strengths are, you can use it pretty well. Yeah. Well, since Minnesota, I've been kind of boning up on them recently. I really love this lineup they're going out, Rubio, Levine, Wiggins, Gorgie Towns. That five, I think, works really, really well together. And I'm really curious how they do it in the next month, month and a half. 
I think Jang is doing a better job in those lineups than I thought he would. I, when I was kind of, I wrote a kind of a rant piece about the, about Minnesota and Sam Mitchell's rotations. And originally he was one of the concerning pieces. He wasn't the focus for me. That was more playing Levine next to Rubio and things like that. But Jang has done a nice job in that. And also I think that he is the most easily upgradable of those guys because if Towns can be a self-sufficient five, then you could go in a lot of different directions of power forward, but he right for right now, as they're kind of growing together, he does a nice job of filling in the gaps. Yeah. That's one of those things I think where like playing with towns makes your life so much easier playing with towns, whatever your strengths are, he can accentuate them. Like he's just, that's what makes my really, I, I love his game so much is because he makes everybody around him so much better because whatever Jen can't do well, towns can do whatever Wiggins can't do well, towns can do. So he opens the floor for those guys to get some shots. He guards the perimeter for him. He tracks the rim for him. And it's just, and Gordon's a smart player. He's got some good skills to him. And it works because he's got talent there. So that's, and you're definitely right. He's probably the guy you could easily move the most out of A challenging question for you. If you if you were theoretically given the choice, and I'm not saying anybody would, let's ignore contracts to make this more fair. Would you be more comfortable building around Towns than Anthony Davis right now? Yeah, I would. But I've been, I've been a Carl Towns truther for a long time. Like, I've been on the... Uh, I was on the Carl Towns throughout last year. Because I was comparing him to Davis at 18. And I think Towns is a much bigger, better shooter, a better passer, and a better post player. Which, I mean, Davis is amazing, obviously. But I think Towns is just as amazing. I think he's a more versatile player. And when I'm building, on, building around a guy, I'm really looking for versatility. Because to me, like, you want to leave yourself as many outs as possible. Because you never really kind of, especially in the draft, you really can't control who comes to you. You just kind of have to hope players to work appear so if yet the more versatile player is the more type of players on them can work and i think that's really the key to building a team it was and go all, go all the way back to philly when you draft oakwood four it's like man now you're locking the this kind of player at the four this guy at the three this guy at the two this guy at the one or you got to like towns like it's just a free-for-all whoever's available and versatility is an interesting word because i agree with you and i think that it's it's kind of funny because he doesn't have positional versatility but that's because he provides versatility of skill at the most valuable position if you can get a guy who is a quality defender though i will say i was kind of hoping to see him land in philly and play with Embiid, or see him land sacramento and play with cousins that i would be kind of curious to see what would happen yeah we'll probably only have get to see that in all-star games but but yeah, i i, I think i think that the the best the best end game for Towns is to just be a an evolutionary five that can play inside and outside. You know, kind of be what Duncan would be if he played if he had developed and played now as opposed to when he came in. I mean, that isn't to say necessarily that he'll be as great as Duncan, first ballot Hall of Famer, best power forward of all time, all that kind of stuff. But he has the foundation that you can make those comparisons and not feel ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, I think. When I see Towns and I look at the Warriors, I think, well, what if we put a seven-foot guy in Draymond Green's role who did most of the same things, but also he's seven feet tall? And then it's like, oh, man, that's a lot of death for real. Yeah, it is. And what I love about the other guys, Porzingis and, and, and Turner especially, is that they're great in different ways. They're not versatile. They're not as good as Towns. You know, they're, they're going to be at a, at a different level. But, like, Porzingis has a skill set that, I've never seen for a guy that big, and yeah, Dirk is amazing, and Dirk is a better player, but the way Porzingis like comes off screens is super weird for a guy his size. Yeah, I mean, and to be fair, he is way ahead of Dirk at the same age. I mean, 
obviously I'm a Dallas guy, but fair is fair. He, he plays better defense than directly ahead of them. I don't think he'll be able to have a score type of shooter, but he's a great prospect. I'm curious to see how they're going to build it on them with no draft picks. That's to me, is a huge question in the book right now. It's going to take them time, and it's a little bit concerning just because that is a team that has never really done well with that, you know, with the idea that it's going to take time, but there isn't really a way they can do it. The, the way they could expedite it would involve trading Melo, but that, of course, requires his consent. Well, here's a conspiracy theory. You want to get a guy pissed off, he's like Kurt Rambis coaching for two months. Girls ride a player to sign anything, I imagine. I love it. it. It's a challenge because, so you're in the spot where you want, where if, if he's going to stay around, you want him to be happy, and th- he's a good enough player that it's not like you're, it's, he's not dead weight. Because if he was, if he was worse, then you, then he would be kind of a sunk cost in a way and you just have to deal with it. But he's still at the point where another team could be intrigued, but you need him to waive his no trade clause. I mean, conceptually to me, and Melo, I, I had him on my all-star team for a reason. This isn't a guy who I'm, I'm not trashing him for this, but Porzingis is so special that to me, if you're in New York, if you could conceptually get him to agree to a trade to a team where he basically went into space, despite be that making the Knicks a worse team in the present, I think that would be a trade they should consider if it was possible. Yeah, I mean, it's really it's about finding guys around Porzingis and his age range who can grow with him together. You look at Towns in Minnesota, he's got five or six under 24 guys he can grow with. And they're going to get another get couple more. Guys. Yeah, like in free agency, because, you know, RFAs, it's hard to get them. And no one's trade those guys anymore either. So you got to find guys for 26, 27, and they're still not only on, Towns, on Porzingis' timetable. And the only asset we have is Carmelo. He's the only guy who's going to get you draft picks, I think, off that roster. Yeah, I don't. They, I mean, Galway's going to be a free agent this year, so they can't really move him for anything. And the other players, they have some guys that I like. I mean, eventually maybe Robin Lopez because he's he's a good player. He's on a reasonable contract, but he's at the level where it's hard to see a team falling in love with him enough to really give up something of value. He's more a player that another team would be really happy to have than that you're going to be really having to beat teams off with a stick, which is what you want when you're going to get value. I mean, absolutely. Like, Robin Lopez. I mean, he's a good NBA player, but there's a lot of stunners out there. I don't even, there's no one who's like, man, we're Robin Lopez away from being a great game. Yeah, and I think that one of the other end games with this, Seth Partnow's written about this, a lot of people have. It's I think it's also just a part of where the league is going, is that maybe where these back-to-the-basket centers go is the second unit. Because you can't, there isn't the defensive obligation a lot of times, especially if you're going unit against unit. And backup centers in this league cannot handle a Julie look for. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely, I've seen that kind of talk out there, and that doesn't make a lot of sense. I think, to me, it's just more and more going, going not even not even in terms of, like, backups and starters. It's about, like, finding three or four-minute combinations of players. And that's what I've noticed watching her Carl over the last four or five years. And people look, oh, man, what a wizard of a coach. What he does really, really well is he's constantly changing dynamic to attack very small weaknesses very, very quickly. I remember I was watching the game. It was Mavs versus Wolves, and Sam Mitchell was making a sub every like five or six minutes. He's bringing, and then he's bringing all the bench at once. Then it's like this, and Rick Carlisle is just a constant stream of subs: one minute, two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, five minutes. And he's throwing out like five or six looks right away, really, really quickly. And he's like, you know what? That look does not work. Get it out of here. Next look right away. Try this. Then this. Then this. Then this. And that's where I think the little league is going. And that also makes it really hard to adjust because by the time you've kind of sorted things out, there's a different there's a different dynamic out there. And not every player is going to love that, and not every player is going to work with it. But if you get the right mentality of players and you have the right skill sets, it can happen. 
you know, a lot of the two is just your coach being able to think on his feet really quickly. Like, there's some coaches, like, okay, you give them a day between games to adjust. Against someone like Rick Carlisle, it's, you better be thinking every two minutes. You better be snap decisions. Doc Rivers is a guy that I'm thinking of with that. Uh, Doc is does a lot, a really good job managing personalities, but I don't see him as a guy who's good at making flash adjustments. You saw that a lot, too, with, you know, obviously Scott Brooks is the classic example of that. And I think also also something you learn from, like, for example, that I remember the first finals, Carlisle versus Spolstra, and Carlisle really attacked Mike Bibby, and Spoden adjusted until game six by bringing it to Brian Chalmers, and it's just, he learned a lesson from there, and that's, that's part two with coaching is they're just like players. They learn from their mistakes. The best ones do. The ones who you know, are willing to swallow their ego, admit what happened, and learn from it. What other college players have stood out to you so far? Well, I guess in terms of, like, there's different levels of players. I think my, what I'm thinking this year is this draft reminds me of 2011. If you, if you remember, that was the lockout year, and a lot of guys stayed in school. Like, there was, like, Jared Solinger, John Hansen. Was looking back on it like, well, who cares? But at the time, it was a big deal. And everyone was like, wow, the top of this draft is not very good. It's a very weak draft. And it was. What happened, though, is the best players were 11 to 20, 20 to 30. Guys like Chandler Parsons. And from what I remember that draft, the best players were later in the first round. And yeah. I guess the same thing happening here. There are a lot of guys that I've seen in the limited amount that I've seen so far that I think could have a role on good teams. Then maybe they're not going to be the best player, the second best player, or even the third best player. But you, if you can get cheap labor, especially I've written about this for the Sporting News. You know, with this rookie scale, this is the last year for sure. I mean, it could end up changing it, but this is the last year we know definitely is going to be on this super team-friendly rookie scale. And so, yeah, maybe you know, the first year you assume that a rookie's not going to be a positive contributor. That's just the way it generally works, especially if you take him mm-hmm. fifteen or later. But you're going to have them for a little over a million dollars a year for the next three years after that. And if they're your sixth or your fifth man, that's awesome too. Yeah, I mean, I guess I can throw you some guys. I'm looking at the Draft Express mock right now, later the first round to kind of stand out to me. I guess like, like I think Denzel Valentine, that's the guy. He can go much higher. I mean, I'm imagining if Chicken State goes far in a tournament. But, man, that guy is a fun basketball player to watch. Like, I would recommend watch him play. He – has his fingerprints all over the game. He is as dominant a college player that I've seen in a while. He's averaging right now 20 points, 7 boards, and 7 assists a game. And he's a 45% three-point shooter. He cannot be guarded at all at the college level. And he's not very fast. He can't move very well. I'm going to be a plus defender, but he is such a great... He will be so great as a fifth option on a team or as a second unit point guard. He will be freaking great at that. I, I look at him, I could see him being kind of like a better version of Evan Turner on a good team. Yeah, I, I can see that. That definitely makes sense. A guy that I've been, I haven't watched a ton of Gonzaga this year, but I've always thought Sabonis when I've watched oh, him. Oh, yeah. That he he's not going to be the best player on your team, but if he's your fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth best guy, he'll be a lot of fun. I got to see him up close. He came to SMU, and I was very, very impressed. The thing about him is he is really fast. He is really strong. He is really tough, and he is really skilled. The problem with him is he's got short arms and he can't shoot, but he can switch pick and rolls. He'll murder you in the post, and he fights. He really fights and competes for a guy 6'11", 230. He has great post moves. He can really pass the ball, too. I look at him. I think he'll be a phenomenal third big man on the team. Yeah, second-unit second, second unit guy, but just rips people, and then maybe he ends up getting overpaid on his second contract. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, I think, a lot of great fifth through, I think you're saying a lot of great fifth through seventh man in this draft. But, and who knows, we might have some upside from there. A guy I like a lot with upside would be Torian Prince at Baylor. What's, what's happening with him 
He's like a six-seven-two twenty combo forward. Shoots threes. Can guard three or four positions. Put on the floor. His problem is Baylor plays freaking zone all season. He never plays man defense, so you can't really see what he can do. It's that's a whole different can of worms. But Baylor should be playing zone defense when they have elite athletes every position. But that's neither here nor there. Do you have a feel on Scal yet? Oh man, Scal with that Labissiere. My only feel on him is I hope he goes back to school. Like I look at Scal. Scal's your classic small ball five. He's a really skinny guy, and there's no chance he can guard Andre Drummond or DeMarcus Cousins or Carl Towns or, or Brooke Lopez or any of the more traditional fives. And he can't play four because he's, he's a shot blocker. And he's not a great shooter. So he's a small ball five, spread pick and roll, dive to the rim guy. The problem with that is there's a lot of guys like that. Like I look at Scal, and I, I don't see any way they're not even Rabbit in California. They're pretty much the same player, but Rabbit is way more advanced on offense. He gets way more rebounds, and and I think and I guess the same thing probably with Devonta Davis at Michigan State, or you look at you look at Shade Gallo. I I put Scal more on level of Shade Gallo at Kansas. Another guy who should who was thought of lottery pick, but he should probably come back to school as a sophomore. For selfish reasons, I hope that some of those guys come out and then just fall a little bit, and maybe they can get into some better situations because with all of them you're going to need, to, maybe except for Rob, you're going to need to be patient because it's going to take them some time to figure it out and, you know, to fill out as well. And I'm more comfortable seeing a guy do that in the pros, especially when they're making a little bit of money. But we'll, we'll see what decisions those guys make because another part of this is that if there's a new CBA by the by 2017, then there will be a, presumably some changes to the rookie scale. We don't know exactly what it'll be, and it probably won't be that much better for them, but it almost definitely will be different. And even if it's like, let's say it's tied to the salary cap, it'd probably be more lucrative than what they're getting now. Yeah, I think with those guys, though, like those are very key developmental years. I would tell them, hey, man, the money will be there. You're freaking 6'11". You're freaking athletic. you got skills. Don't sweat the cash right now. Like Holly Stein. Yeah, don't don't sweat the cash. The cash will be waiting for you when you're ready. I would say Rab, I think, is a guy I'm really, really curious to get to the NBA level. Because Cal, Cal has no spacing, really. They said Ty Walls who can't shoot. Jalen Brown can't shoot. They play two bigs who can't shoot seven-footers. Rab, when I see them playing space, is super interesting. I come to, like, imagine Brandon Wright. If Brandon Wright had a great post game. It can handle the ball and pass the ball. And had better like, instincts. Yeah, I mean, Ivan Rabb is such a skilled basketball player. He, I think he could be possibly the steal of this draft. Yeah, I've been really impressed with him because I, I, I've seen a couple of their games in person, and you, there are moments where you watch him and you go, wait, which one of those guys is the guy who's who's the highly touted prospect and which is the like late late lottery pick? But then you, you kind of think, well, how is he going to work? You know, let's say he has to play the five and the pros. You know, he's going to struggle with some of those guys. But I think that something that gets lost in the shuffle sometimes is that there is a lot of value in the NBA for just being a rotation player. You know, let's, let's say he can't start. Okay. Yeah, as I was just saying earlier, it's like these days you play in the right system and he's in like eight, he's in eight lineups. That's really what matters. It's not so much, oh, He's starting, he's a bench player. You look at, okay, he'll play with this guy for five minutes, he'll play with that guy for four minutes, play with that guy for five minutes. And they'll have this kind of thing with that lineup, that kind of thing with this lineup. And all add it all together, you've got a very impactful player. Are you as bitter as I am that some of these most interesting players aren't even going to play in the NCAA tournament? Uh, I mean, I, obviously Simmons. Let me look at this one. Simmons not going to play in the tournament, but the Cal guys will be there, Dunn will be there. Uh, actually, I think it's really only... Uh, Ben Simmons, Henry Ellenson will play in a tournament. 
those are really the only two guys who won't be there at the top 15 or 20. Everybody else will be there. Yeah, I guess that's true. Uh, I just it would have been fun to see Simmons against that competition. Oh, I, that would be that would have been fun, no doubt. Yeah, that and that LSU team is just so inconsistent. It's it's maddening to watch them sometimes. I mean, they the crazy thing about it, they've got a lot of talent. They've got this guy Tim Quarterman, a six six guy, might be NBA point guard. They've got Antonio Blackney, a five star recruit. They've got a pretty good big man in Craig Victor. I mean, they've got no excuse. That's the bottom line. Yeah. Well, and as you wrote, I think, was that last week about how how much they're missing Jordan Mickey and Jarrell Martin? Like, if they had one of those guys to come back, I, that would have been the kind of the, the way for them to really make it. Yeah, I mean, cause I, was, it was, I saw someone tweeting, like, man, LSU gained the number one player in the country, but they're so much worse. It's like, yeah, they lost two really great college big men. And going back to, like, the small ball five discussion, why well, I love Mickey so much is, like, he is the small ball five because he's like 240. He's got super long arms, great athlete, so he can block shots, and he can bang in the post, and he can create offense off the dribble, and he can post up, and he has like a 20-foot jumper. Like, to me, if he come back to college and he can play with Simmons for a year and a pick and roll, we're looking at top 15 pick easily. Yeah, and, and he, as a second-round pick, he doesn't have the same kind of money as if he had been a first, but at the same point, there's also – Less team control, so he'll become a free agent a little bit earlier, which is, I guess, a good thing for him. Do you think he's gonna? He'll be a five eventually. Is that kind of in the pros? Do you think that's what it'll be? I think so. I mean, I think as I was saying earlier, like if a guy can play down a spot, you just got to do it. If a guy can be a good four and a great five, you got to play at the five. If he can survive at one position, I guess. Listen, let me say it. If a guy can survive at a position lower than he naturally would play, you got to move him there. Like if he can. Like Harrison Barnes is the classic example. He can survive as a four. It makes him so much more valuable than him being a guy at the three. And Mickey, he can survive with the five. That makes him so much more valuable because he's a faster player. He spreads the floor more, and it makes you a faster team in general with him at the five. And if they can, you know, slide around for defensive purposes, all the better. Yeah. And Mickey, Mickey's a guy who can, I think, probably switch pick and rolls at the five position. So that's just, that's just, that's that's money in the bank right there. And the other kind of amazing possibility, not with Mickey, but with I'm thinking more with Towns, is I think we're going to see more of these bigs that get capable of running pick and rolls, which is just something that people don't really know what to deal with right now. I mean, that's just the way, without repeating being in the cliches, that's the way the league is going. Like, big men got to defend pick and rolls. That's the NBA game these days. Yeah, like if you bang the post, that's great. You just got to move your feet in the front, you got to do it. Yeah, but like if you're, if you're let's say you, you're the Pelicans, and you can run an Anthony Davis initiating a 4-2 pick-and-roll, teams just wouldn't be able to handle that. Yeah, I mean, I, as a, I remember the Mavs series last year, Mavs-Rockets, and then it was close to that. They're like, oh, man, let's just run the Josh Twight pick-and-roll dirt every single time. And I won a series for them. It would, That was it. There was just nothing the Mavs could do. It was dunk, 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 dunk. It was, it was outrageous. Yeah, it, it really is impressive. Uh, anything else sting out to you you want to talk about? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess, I think for me, with the tournament, I would say, I guess we already talked about it, but like, watch Cal. Cal's, I think, the team to watch in this tournament. They've got possibly three to five. I love Jabari Bird. I think he's an NBA player for sure, and he's just being hidden, all the good players around him. I like They've him too. They've got three to five NBA players. If they can find the right mix, all those guys can make a lot of money really fast in March. That's the fun part about March Madness is like, man, you're talking about, 40 minutes for like $10 million in your life right now. Just play one great game, get on the news, get your name out there. I mean, I remember, the one I remember is Kyle O'Quinn playing at Norfolk State. No one knew anything about this guy. The 15th seed, they played Missouri the 2 seed. He had the game of his life. 
And now what? He's a five NBA player off that one game. That's what Mark Madden's all about, man. Forty and, minutes change a whole freaking life. And what I love about it is also as somebody who's become more of an NBA fan with time is the timing is perfect. If you're somebody who's more of an NBA person, you can watch the NCAA tournament, especially the opening weekend. It's not a big time in the in the professional schedule, and then you can get you can downshift you can get ready for nba basketball and then by the time it's over that's when you have the draft and as long as you can remember what you watched a couple months before you're all good i mean absolutely that's pretty, absolutely like i mean my goodness middle to like middle of march early april in the nba is i mean that's a dead time guys are already resting and maybe you have to race for the seventh or the eighth seed but nothing really too groundbreaking is happening you catch two some march madness april 4th you're done then you get a week to get back to playoffs and boom it's the playoffs it's a pretty, it's a pretty awesome world right now, and we'll we'll see where it goes from here. Well, uh, thank you so much for taking the time. It's always great to talk to you, man. All right, man. Have a good one. Thanks again to Jonathan Charks for taking the time to come on. You can read him at Real GM Pattern of Basketball.blogspot.com, which is his site, and numerous other outlets. You can also follow him on Twitter. Very good follow, Jonathan Charks. J O N A T H A N T J A R K S. And I love talking to Jonathan and reading his work because. He has a distinct perspective. I think he's right on a vast majority of things. And where the league is going is, I think, where he's most right. And the piece that we talked about early on with Julia Okafor and Nerlens Noel, I think, is a, a really good kind of testament to, to the way that he's thinking about it. And I think, for the most part, he's right. I've criticized Nick Vucevic for such a long time that it's kind of second nature in that kind of a way. And I think there is a place for those tiny guys. It's just going to be a little bit different. And you have to be so good to make it work. So Jonathan, I, I've believed it for a while and I still believe it and will believe it for a long time. He's a rising star in this business. Keep an eye on him and follow him on Twitter if you don't already and read his work. He is one of the people of the of the group that I read everything that they put out and it's worth it. And so if I'm doing that, you should probably be doing it too. So also, if you're going to be doing that, I encourage that. You should also definitely use SeatGeek. You can use the pass, the code REALGM, R-E-A-L-G-M, all caps, no spaces, and that will get you $20 off your first purchase. It is a wonderful app, and I'm thrilled that they're a sponsor. And as I, as I said during the live read, I am a big fan of their product. It's something that I'm very familiar with. So when that opportunity came across, I was absolutely pumped about it, I guess is probably the best word for it. So I've had a lot of material come out in the last little bit. I started the what are going to be a, a series of 30 off-season previews for the sporting news that started with the San Antonio Spurs. That came out on Wednesday, or maybe it was Tuesday. It was Tuesday. And I also did an AMA on Reddit, which was really, really fun. You should be able to see that on my Facebook page, which is Danny LaRue NBA. You can also follow me on Twitter at Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. As I say pretty much every episode, I read everything. I respond to as much as I can. I am getting more now, so that makes it harder to respond, but I do appreciate it. And you know, whether it's positive, whether it's negative, whatever it is, as long as it's constructive, if it's just like your voice is bad or something like that, well, I mean, you could say it, I'm not going to stop you, but it's, that's not really helpful. But other than that, it, it is. And Jonathan, he and I, I've been thinking about having him on in the near future anyway, as I was kind of diagramming the next month or so. And somebody mentioned the AMA and I said, you know, I, I said, Hey, I might as well reach out to him now. We ended up making it work for this week and I'm really happy to have him. I love talking with him. So hope you enjoyed this podcast. I'm going to keep going strong for the next few weeks and we'll see where it goes. Uh, some of you have already asked and 
it looks like it is going to happen. I don't say my guess ahead of time, but we are going to try to do a Sam Vecini, Mike Schmitz preview for, of the draft guys, probably right before the NCAA tournament. I, I like to do right before that. I've considered before the conference tournament too, but as an NBA kind of centered thing, I think you kind of want to put all the NCAA stuff in one, one episode. And so that's the tentative plan for right now. So thank you so much for listening. Use the code on SeatGeek. Take. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal hard. I'm yelling and screaming and I'm loud. Roar. Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on Geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even upset about anything! Care and make it a great day. Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active.